The world over, the suburban-urban divide is a real thing, a real characteristic of the geographies of our cities. Although the language we use to have this conversation isn't really too useful. Some have argued that the city and the suburb is no longer a useful opposition and that what really matters are walkable urban places versus drivable suburban ones. We sometimes think of this problem of drivable suburban places as a North American phenomena, given the vast, often previously agricultural areas that have now been consumed by tract housing over the past 50 years or so. But in my travels, I have now explored suburbs from Amsterdam to Melbourne and in between. All share a key characteristic, single use, just housing, they're just places to live and sleep, often catering to a single tenure, meaning tower or mid-rise rental blocks or single family homes, and designed on the assumption that everyone will travel everywhere in a car. Of course, there are exceptions like the transit suburbs of the 50s and 60s that pepper my city. But in general, suburbs are known for their homogeneity. In our mind's eye, urban means something. It's used to describe people, clothing, design, and attitudes. Suburban means something too. Depending on where you sit or where you reside, urban is good or urban is bad. Suburban is bad or suburban is good. Who knew that in the 21st century, the design of our landscapes, our habitats, the places where we live and raise our families, the places where we undertake our daily lives would generate such strong, even political and oppositional opinions. But alas, to my chagrin, they truly have. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat and this is Invisible City. In studio with me today is urbanist Brent Todron from Vancouver, Canada. Brent's professional practice spans both the very, very urban Think Vancouver and the very suburban Think Calgary, Canada places. I invited Brent in to discuss the transformation and the need for transforming suburbia. So I'm really glad to have Brent here in studio. It's interesting because he's in town because he's doing some work in Burlington, which is a suburb. And in thinking about some of the things that I wanted- They would be terribly offended that you called them a suburb. Oh, well, that that is great fodder for what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) So from my mind, where I sit- in Toronto, there are suburbs. So that's actually, I'm I'm glad you called me out on that. <laughs> we'll get right into it. This episode is about transforming the suburbs and uh, it sort of, in its very title, raises a bunch of questions. Uh, that gets right to the heart of what we're talking about. What do we even mean when we're talking about suburbs in this day and age? Because I think most people would uh, recognize that our built-up areas across this nation are going through their own transformations or changing. At what point does an area transition from being urban to suburban? Does it matter? Does this label even useful? Let's begin with this as a starting point. I know you have some opinions on this topic. Uh, what do what do we even mean by suburban versus urban versus sprawl? Bring bring some of that as a way of framing the conversation we're about to have. Well, uh, you know, we we planning types uh, risk becoming really boring when we start to talk about first ring suburbs. You know, we've been building suburbs since the 40s, 50s, 60s, and we have places that are beautiful, surprisingly urban, leafy, relatively dense places that were the first generation of suburbs, streetcar suburbs, for example, that are even well still well-serviced by transit. Absolutely. That we still call them suburbs, but they're remarkably urban, or at least they're a a better, more successful kind of suburb. But when we talk about retrofitting suburba, suburbia or doing better suburbs, we're talking we're usually talking about that extreme edge. It's the brand new green fields, we call them, former farmer's field, former green space, now becoming a new subdivision and how to do that better. Even that term subdivision, you know, if you want to be pejorative about the suburbs, call it a subdivision. Absolutely. That's so, the way to, absolutely. But you know, it, you're, you're hitting on an important point here and I want to hear more of this distinction, but I always like to start the conversation, particularly with my 
Toronto-centric lens. Uh, but I would say this about many Canadian cities. We have some of the most beautiful suburbs in the world. Um, if you go out to parts of Scarborough, parts of Etobicoke in Toronto, parts of North York, we have beautiful leafy green suburbs where you can live on a gracious lot with trees that have matured over the course of the past 40 years and are now quite stunning. The tree canopy in our suburbs, the access to park space in our suburbs is really quite phenomenal on, on a global scale. And I'm glad you kind of called this out right at the beginning, this notion of suburbs as, as having a negative connotation because, uh, first of all, we don't want to start there, but we do want to recognize that there are things about suburbs that actually need to evolve and change uh, to make them better places. Well, um, I think an important thing to stay, say, state at the beginning is that there is a difference between the word, the concept of a suburb or suburbia and this word we use, sprawl. And there's a lot of people Absolutely. that use those terms interchangeably, like all suburbs are sprawl. Right, right. There's also increasingly in recent, for the, for the urbanists out there, there's a, there's a contingency of urbanists that want to ban the word sprawl. They've, they've said, let's not use it because it's antagonistic and we, we lose our audience and we can't have a conversation about a different kind of suburb if we call it sprawl because we make everybody mad. I, I call that a taboo word. I've got a list of taboo <laughs> words that suddenly I'm, I'm told I shouldn't be using because I'm going to not have a successful conversation with anyone. I don't buy that. Uh, I think you have to have a conversation about the word sprawl. You got to say the word and you got to be able to explain the difference between what we're calling sprawl and why we need to stop sprawl at the same time as saying we have no intention of stopping suburbia. That's not going to happen anytime soon and doesn't really need to happen. You know, if I could reach you, I'd high five you right now because I completely... <laughs> I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it's actually a risk not to make that distinction and not to be kind of call a spade a spade. And there is something called sprawl that needs to be changed and we need to name it and we need to recognize it. But, and I want you to continue on this thread, we also need to differentiate it from suburbs. Those two things aren't necessarily the same. So we can overcomplicate that uh, differentiation that that, w that what's the difference uh, and I but I try to make it really simple I spend a lot of time talking to the general public or even to politicians and such and I say if you got to boil it down it's two words auto dependency car dependency because you can actually have suburbs that are walkable that have things in them that you can walk to not just a leafy street that you can enjoy walking on, but something you can actually walk to. Destinations. It's not necessarily high density, but it's still relatively mixed. The quality of the environment makes it a delight to walk in, etc. Or you can have places, really the only rational choice that any sane person would do would be to get into their car for just about anything. And if you have no rational choice, if you're sort of tied to your car and your household has to have two or three cars as a result, for the basics of life, you're living in sprawl. And it can be a leafy sprawl, but it's still sprawl. So if you fund so when we say we want to stop sprawl, it means we want to make our suburbs, which are still going to be a choice for people, uh, with more choice. And and this is not about telling people what not to do. It's about giving them options about what they can do because choice and freedom is a good thing as far as I know. So that's, the, I think, where the conversation can go. And why wouldn't we, even if we want to drive, why wouldn't we want to have options so we don't necessarily have to carry on top of the mortgage the two or three or even four car car payments adding to our affordability challenges? So. so let's we'll get into that a little bit more later. But I just want to pick up on this idea that there's a whole series of different types, different characters of areas that we sort of put into the category of suburbs or sprawl, but actually need to be differentiated. And I know you're very familiar with the work of Professor David Gordon from Queen's University, where he essentially looked at the Canadian landscape and created a whole series of different types, came to the conclusion that the vast majority of Canadians, 83% or something, live in suburbs. But then he broke that down into auto-oriented suburbs versus transit-oriented suburbs. He had a few other categories as well as a way of trying to differentiate that what we're 
currently calling suburbs, some people in their mind's eye, when they hear the word suburbs, they're thinking about what you just described. They're actually thinking about sprawl. They're thinking about a place where you can only do things by getting in and out of your car. That's it, full stop, versus areas that might have uh, a mixture of uses along main corridors and destinations still within walking density, walking distance, but at a low density, where there might be... uh, pretty great transit with a high frequency that makes it a true option, even though it's in a lower, lower density area. Like there's a whole variety. Although that specific detail is actually pretty hard. It's pretty it's very hard to difficult. find. Well, it has to be high highly subsidized. Transit. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you're running high frequency every 15 minute transit in a low density area, probably you're subsidizing it. You absolutely uh, are. Yeah. You absolutely are subsidizing well, we're subsidizing it. most transit actually in the suburbs, but you know, it's, it's a Herculean effort to, to, to run it that way. And you're probably not getting the ridership, but it, so Density is part of the conversation about a better suburb. When you look at the patterns of suburbs that are less auto dependent, they're not necessarily dense, but they're more dense than the, and, and they're more mixed and they're more integrated uh, with better connectivity, this word we use, which just means you can actually get in a more direct way. You don't have to go north in order to go, go south. south. There's yeah. a direct route <laughs> to get you there. And it's a delightful route. It's not a painful route for you to take if you're a pedestrian or a cyclist or a transit rider, et cetera, in that particular moment of your life. So uh, a lo- density is going to be part of the conversation. But I think to your point, When we talk about retrofitting the suburbs or urbanizing suburbia, these are all kinds of terms we've started to use as urbanists. They can, they can carry a lot of baggage with them. So when you think about these terms, if, if you're talking about making a suburb an urban place, it's almost by definition not a suburb anymore. And not, not, not everyone, some people chose to live in suburbs. On the other hand, Sometimes they chose them because we've been subsidizing suburbs, the whole perverse subsidies that, that Pamela Blay talks about. Mm-hmm, and such. Mm-hmm. So they're making choices because the rest of us are paying their way. Or so let me just it. pause you there because yeah. you, let's actually, let's actually just do a little detour here and talk a little bit about the perverse subsidies. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. And uh, then I want to go back um, and just kind of go back to the description a little bit more and just unpack that a bit. So the first part is you threw it out there. So I think we should run with it because it is a very important part when we look at the historic land patterns that we see and that have evolved. Uh, When I started in planning school, people would say to me, well, we have suburbs because that's what the market demands. I heard that again and again, and I was scratching my head and I was like, really? Um, And then I stumbled upon Pamela Blay's book, uh, which um, she called Perverse Cities. And basically her book is about what she called hidden subsidies. And she threw, she's a land economist and she essentially teased out this argument that if you look at the policies that municipalities have, that they inherently subsidize and have subsidized greenfield developments while at the same time penalizing infill developments as a, as a result of the way municipal finance is in fact structured in most municipalities. So a municipality could have the stated objective of wanting to become more dense and more transit oriented and more sustainable overall, making its footprint smaller. But then she would go and look at its finance policies and would discover that in fact the city was subsidizing both through capital and operating infrastructure that it was in fact subsidizing uh, greenfield development. So I think this is kind of an important part of the narrative anytime you talk about suburbs and market demand and what people want. Um, there's been a lot of policy that's actually facilitated this and it's right. important to sort of lay on the table. We've we've deliberately through public policy made the suburban option more attractive. Absolutely. By, by putting a lot of money into making it um, nice from the perspective of the home buyer and cheaper. Although increasingly, when you actually do studies like the Australians have to look at all costs, uh, transportation costs on top of home buying costs, it's increasingly not at all clear that it's cheaper. In some cases, the studies show that it's both more expensive and more vulnerable to cost changes like interest rates or gas prices, et cetera, than, right, right. than inner city or urban options are. But 
you know, the, the so just common a little, narrative. Just a little interjection there. Uh, some of that work's been done in Ontario as well, and in particular uh, by the Pembina Institute. And they, in fact, have argued for a framework of looking at household costs because then you're combining transportation costs uh, with the cost of paying your mortgage or paying your rent. And they've demonstrated through their analysis that whereas it may look like uh, paying uh, a higher mortgage is in fact going to be a higher household cost when you take into account the transportation cost and you blend it that often paying a higher mortgage, which is also an investment as opposed to a cost such as driving a car, and then you look at the quality of life implication, the long commute versus the short commute, that in fact the infill scenario actually wins out again and again, forgetting the municipal subsidy and whether that exists or not, because in most places it still does, but forgetting that piece, just looking in terms of your own household costs, that when you shift the framework to include the transportation implication, which for most people, after their budget, transportation is the second highest item in their budget or maybe third after food, um, that you begin to get a completely different lens and a completely different way into thinking about cost. Even before we factor in the Pamela Blay perverse subsidy math, that when you do the full household costing, um, it's not even as attractive as you think. And one of the things I like about the Australian study is that um, they factored in this concept of, they actually call it the vampire index, which I just <laughs> think is the coolest thing ever, that they actually made something spell vampire. vampire. <laughs> and I can't remember what all the things are, but the V stands for vulnerability. Ah, because it, it looks at your costs plus the unpredictability of your costs, which is an added layer that I haven't seen others do. Pembina has done some great stuff too, absolutely. But it, uh, even those two studies haven't factored in an opportunity cost relative to time. Right. Because they're doing the full cost as if that's all you're paying and time has no value in that equation. So if we factor in the long commute and from a straight opportunity cost of what you could make if you were working versus an, uh, you know, uh, putting your kids to bed at night rather than missing out on that or teaching them to ride a bike, the, the quality of life cost, it's even greater. But some of those, not everything that counts can be counted. And so it's, it's but I want to go back to this idea of, of the subsidies because- Whatever the household math is, the conversation, which isn't an easy conversation to have, is that you may say you're choosing the suburbs, but you're choosing them because the rest of us are, to a certain extent, making that choice more attractive. For right, you. right. And by the, and even from a even aside from the cost perspective, you know the suburbs will put great pressure on the inner city to facilitate that choice by building freeways through the the downtown and such because they want Absolutely. The, to get their regional transportation demand uh, satisfied, even though it deteriorates the quality of life in the inner city. So there's a lot of pressure that comes from that choice. Well, here, well, here's a great irony. So uh, lots of emphasis right now in Canadian cities and in particular in our region in investing in regional transit. Why do we need to invest in regional transit? Well, because people are living in cities outside of the core and they need to get into the core. We don't want all those cars coming into the core. Uh, it's part and partly responding to congestion. So I take it back a step and say, well, why are people living so far away from where they work? And the answer is, because they can't afford the housing, because the housing is too expensive close to where they work. So they live farther away because the housing is less expensive. But hold on a minute. But then we build very expensive public infrastructure in order to facilitate that choice. So what happens if we say, well, wait a minute, isn't it better for everyone to have the option to live close to where you work so that you also get the quality of life benefits of being able to walk to work or cycle or take transit, a short transit ride to work. And if that's the case, wouldn't it be smarter to subsidize the housing instead of subsidizing the long commute? Because you don't really want the long commute. You in fact have the long commute because you can't afford the housing near where you work. So in terms of creating livable, sustainable communities where people will thrive, wouldn't it be smarter to subsidize the housing instead of subsidizing the long commute? You know, and that's sort of a big idea. Like, I don't think that's something that we're talking about enough today, but it's a really important part of the conversation about, you know, municipal finance and also suburbs and, and where we plan. It's funny because I was uh, at an event not too long ago and I was asked to talk a little bit about some of these issues related to municipal finance and someone else was there and said, well, 
you're a planner, you shouldn't be talking about finance. And I said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you where to invest, but I can talk to you about the implication that municipal finance has on land use planning decisions and the way we think about what we will subsidize and what we won't subsidize and that how that links up with our larger policy objectives is all about city building, right? Like this couldn't be more relevant to planning and to planners and to the shape and form of our city. Like the municipal finance piece plays a fundamental role in dictating the way we make choices. The municipal finance piece and the provincial and federal finance piece in the context of smart taxes. You know, one of the ways you would be able to subsidize that is by changing the tax regime. Right now, you, you are penalized because of market-based or value-based taxes for picking a more sustainable, less infrastructure-intensive choice in the inner city. And you pay more per square foot in taxes because of that, because it's worth more, ironically. Uh, whereas if you taxed based on impact instead of taxed based on value, but, you know, planners, individual city planners, we often say, well, wouldn't it be great if there was smarter taxes, but that's beyond our purview in the municipal side, mm-hmm, which is why mm-hmm. we sometimes get together in these groups. I'm the president of the Council for Canadian Urbanism. You've you've been involved in our organization many times in the past. And it, in those kinds of bodies, we can at least talk slash lobby slash uh, facilitate a conversation mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. something at a broader Canadian scale. But us planners every day, we don't always feel the ability to do that. Well, absolutely. But it's also about taking the conversation back to what our objectives are, right? Like what's our objective in the city? Because if our objective is to uh, facilitate the long commute, then you're going to plan your infrastructure and your transit Which infrastructure. Which we've been doing. You would, you would assume that's this our objective because well, that's you, what we've been doing. That's what we've been doing. And you know what? It turns out that not too many people actually want to sign up for the long commute. And pe- even people who do sign up for the long com- commute, what I've discovered, uh, at some point... Uh, in their lives, they either regret it or they decide against it. I was speaking with someone at a dinner party the other day who um, lives in uh, lives just outside the city of Toronto in Caledon and kind of looked at the distance on the map and made some choices and said, you know, well, this way I get a much bigger house, I have a much bigger property. And we're sitting at the dinner table and I said to him, well, you know, it's interesting. I did a long commute when I was in university. When I was going up to university, it was out in the suburbs at York University and I was living in Etobicoke in Toronto and in another suburb. I was commuting from suburb to suburb. So there wasn't a very good connection. It took me an hour to get there. And it was at that point that in my head, I said, I will never live this way. Like I, I will really, you know, I'm going to try to figure out ways to make choices that allow me to live in a very different way. And what was interesting in this conversation was this uh, this this guy I was speaking to uh, who works in downtown Toronto said, you know, um, I sort of got swept up in the vision and I forgot about my day-to-day life. I had this vision of living on this beautiful property and of my children riding ponies <laughs> and I forgot about my day-to-day life and here I am now. And he was filled with, he was filled with regret because the promise didn't deliver. He'd forgotten about that everyday part of life. You know, I agree with that. And I've heard those, I have those kind of anecdotes too, but some some listener is thinking right now, oh, these urbanites totally. s- sitting there talking about how every rational person who moves out to the suburbs realizes, what have I done? Whereas in reality, we've got to accept and, and embrace the idea that a lot of people like the suburbs. Absolutely. Now, a fair question that flows from that is do you like it because of the subsidies and would you choose it if you had to pay the full costs, the true costs of your choice? And if I'm ever having a debate with a suburbanite, I never do what many urbanists do, which is somehow criticize their choice and say, you're somehow wrong or you poor thing, you don't understand what a horrible life you live out in the suburbs. I, as an urbanite, I'm going to tell you uh, uh, how your life should be. Well, you know, because just they to... find it patronizing, they find yeah, it yeah. elitist, et cetera. But what I say often is, here's all the truths behind your choice. And would you actually choose that if the the playing field were level? Right. Or, uh, uh, and you, we weren't, ironically, subsidizing your choice from the inner city because of the higher taxes and lower infrastructure costs that we have in the inner city. And then they have a harder time debating that point because it's it's kind of about basic fairness. 
Well, it is about basic fairness, but just to go back, uh, you know, the example I gave, um, part of why I like to give that example is that I've, I'm almost at a tipping point, but I don't think I am yet where I've lived more of my life in the suburbs than I have in the city. I'm, I'm sure I've hit the tipping point at this point at my age, but for you know, big, I was raised in the suburbs. I've spent an enormous amount, you know, of my uh, a big part of my adult life was also spent in the suburbs. So I don't, and I was one of those crazy suburbanites who took transit and rode my bike everywhere just because that was the way I wanted wanted to get around, and it was a choice that I choice that I did have, uh, and I recognize that not everyone has that choice either because the transit infrastructure doesn't exist or they don't have the athletic ability like I did to cycle for 45 minutes to get downtown every to get downtown every day but my point sort of being that um I don't actually think that there's like an urban person and a suburban person and they're two completely different types of people and I think that conversation actually is a fallacy that we fall into uh in the west onlands here in Toronto in the athletes village the building has filled up and uh one of my planners uh lives in the building and he came in one day and he said you know it's an amazing thing and this is a colloquialism to our region but he said our the building is filled with 905ers uh people who lived out in the, the outer suburbs in the region who've moved right into the core of the city what are they are they suburban are they urban why do we have to do this why do we have to assume that we you know the geography of where we live actually comes with a title that has a whole bunch of other other assumptions associated with it i actually think it's it it's false because people who might live in the suburbs might work in the downtown or or vice versa. It's false, but it also kind of entrenches this notion that one is right and one is wrong, which I think when we talk about transforming the suburbs, we're actually trying to get away from. We're trying to get to this idea that everyone should live in an area where you have housing choices, where there isn't just single family homes, but where you have a variety of housing typologies where you can rent and where you can own, where you can drive sometimes, but where most of the time you've got great transit or cycling or walking, where there are a diversity of, of uses. And I think when we start, I think that can help us kind of hammer away at this, you know, in where I live and in many other places I've seen, it's happening in Paris right now um, because of the freeways that are being taken away from the center. The suburbs are rebelling as opposed to kind of this, you know, I think our language is actually reinforcing this idea that there's this big di divide, which I actually don't, I, I'm not sure exists, and I'll throw it out to you. Brent, have you ever lived in the suburbs? Yeah, well, yes, I've lived in rural areas, I've lived right. in the suburbs, I've lived in a small town, I've lived in medium-sized cities, and I've lived in big cities. Uh, and I think it's important to have those different kinds of perspectives. And, and one of the things that taught me is to not criticize people's choices, but to try to understand them. Because you essentially want to, I think our goal of our generation of urbanism is to build better suburbs. Uh, and by better, that's not a qualitative discussion. It's better performing in the context of public interest objectives. It's not necessarily better for the marketplace or, or rejecting people's personal preferences. But we know that there are some patterns of suburbia, or ace brawl, that are fundamentally unsustainable from a climate change perspective, that are contributing to uh, preventable diseases like uh, everything from obesity, diabetes, heart disease, emphysema, et cetera, that are contributing to pollution, that are, um, that are also bankrupting cities in the context of infrastructure costs, outpacing the ability of cities to generate funds to pay for them. So whatever your preference is, there is true, real consequences and math to our choices that we have to address as society. It's not as simple as what you like better. Exactly. So that's got to be part of the conversation. And But that, again, doesn't mean rejecting the notion of the suburbs. It means making better suburbs. It also means making better inner cities and downtowns that are actually more attractive to people who feel the, the, the need to move to the suburbs, particularly if they have to have or not have to, start to have families. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to make inner cities more family-friendly, and we need to make suburbs more multimodal. And there's actually in North America, and even globally in my observation, a competition right now about who's going to attract the millennials when they start to have families. Are the inner cities going to be able to design for families? I know it's a big issue in Toronto, but I'm, I'm, I'm having this discussion with cities all over the world. 
uh, versus the suburbs that are trying to uh, make the suburbs more attractive to millennials by bringing bike lanes and transit and some of the things that the sub the, the millennials say they like about urban conditions. Well, if our goal is uh, at the end of the day to be enhancing choice, it's exactly what you've just said. It's about enhancing choice in the suburbs and enhancing choice in the core. Uh, we have a project underway right now called Growing Up Vertical. It's all about planning for families in vertical communities because we are attracting millennials into the downtown and they're saying, hey, I need a swing to push my kid on after school. Um, there's some very basic amenities. Or I need a spot to park my stroller that doesn't block up the front hall of my condo because there's not a lot of room in the foyer of the condo to park to park an amenity, which is critical if you're walking everywhere like, like a stroller. And I do think it is about, uh, it's about, this tension, which I think is kind of coming out in the context of this discussion that you started with around uh, there are some things that fundamentally need to be changed about the suburbs. And when as people who are living in an urban place and who are trying to make cities more sustainable, when we start to talk about those things that need to be changed in the suburbs, it feels like a judgment on where someone lives, which feels really harsh. But at the end of the day, we do need to go back to some of the really critical facts, some of which you started listing off about diabetes rates, yeah. about um, uh, 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 about what we're seeing in Toronto, poverty in the suburbs, and increasingly poverty in the suburbs as a result of a lack of access to things like transit and great access to jobs. Those are things that as people who care about cities and who care about livability and who care about ensuring that we're creating places where people really will thrive, as people who care about those things, we have to identify them and we have to change them. What I like about the conversation that we've just been describing is that in my observation, and I, I hope I'm not naive in, 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 in thinking this, is that to me it feels like a less judgmental conversation. Because before we started to talk about the quantifiable and somewhat irrefutable truths of the suburban choice, we had a very ideological judgment on the suburbs, us urbanists and urbanites and such that, you know, don't you understand you live in a soulless place and that you're raising, I can't believe you're raising your kids in the suburbs and, you know, you probably don't even know your neighbors. And the suburbanites are thinking, what are you crazy? I open my garage door and my neighbors come over and have a beer and we, we have a great social environment on our <laughs> cul-de-sac. Exactly. And the kids play soccer on the street. What exactly. are you talking about, you urbanites? You don't even understand. So that to me comes across as a much more judgmental, ideological, I stay away from that. I don't even really believe it's true. But a lot of urbanists go down that route and it's a problem. Whereas if you can make it more about the quantifiable, irrefutable challenges we face on society, it's and, and then say, by the way, these are all the truths, but we know it's not, quote unquote, to, to not sound patronizing, it's not your fault that you're choosing the suburbs in the context of all these consequences. We've made that choice more attractive for you. We facilitated that choice. And by the way, we might made it hard for you to make the alternative choice because we haven't built family-friendly housing in the inner city. We haven't built daycare facilities and schools and such. So there's an important kind of theme here, which is really critical to this discussion from my perspective, which is that we haven't delivered in many of our cities in either scenario. We haven't delivered in the suburbs. The vision, what was promised in the suburbs didn't hold true to reality. And the same in the urban context. And I actually think that what's happening, you know, the boom we see in Toronto right now is because we're finally beginning to deliver on the promise. You know, over 75% of people who live in the core of the city of Toronto, which you know, in another 20 years is going to have half the population of a province like Saskatchewan, over 75% walk, cycle, or take transit to work. That's a really impressive number on the global scale. You compare it to any city. It's a really impressive number. That's today. But it's actually taken us 40 years to get there. We've had a 40-year plan that we've been implementing, and part of it has been getting the density right the mix of uses right, the arts and culture, the sports facilities right. But now also we have a proliferation of great cuisine, but also grocery stores in the downtown. And this is often a big constraint 
that is missing in the urban concept, context is access to food and amenities for every everyday life. But, you know, it's been a concerted project over a 40-year period to deliver. We are just beginning that same project in most municipalities with respect to adapting and transforming the suburbs to ensure that they can deliver on the promise, that there can be things to do within walking distance, that you do have a choice to get around in different ways, that there's a variety of housing types instead of just one kind of home that you can live in. There's lofts, there's two bedrooms, there's condos, there's a whole variety of different types of places to live. That's often missing in our suburban communities, and we're just beginning to fix that. Right. Uh, well, yeah, and it's the challenge of this generation, I think, of city makers to to ramp up, speed up the 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 the, the speed of that transformation, and and constantly making the point that this isn't about ideology, this isn't about preference, this is about uh, extreme pragmatism in the sense that we have societal issues that we have to do better at addressing, so, uh, designs that are making us sick, literally obesogenic environments that are contributing to bad health, climate change, etc. So there's compelling public interest reasons to do better. And then there's the opportunity piece, which is about who's going to win in attracting the millennials. And that's why I make this point rather simplistically, that it is a competition against the suburbs and the inner city. As the millennials get to the family bearing age and theoretically have permanently left their parents' basement and aren't going to boomerang back. And they need, they're looking for, they want it all. They're not necessarily getting it all in the choices that they have, but what they're looking for is the quality of life, the urban condition, the ability to raise a family. So this is a great competition because the suburbs are trying to be smarter to attract this demographic that wants urban elements like bike lanes and public transit and walkability and local grocery stores and things like that. And the urban places are finally shedding this, this frustrating narrative that families will never live in the inner mm-hmm, city. Mm-hmm. You know, I was the chief planner of Vancouver for six years. We have 7,000 kids in the downtown peninsula. We're about to, within months, open the second downtown brand new vertical four-story elementary school within the downtown peninsula. We, we have daycare everywhere using density bonusing as a tool to achieve it. You know, we've been building for families first. And the kids came in numbers that, frankly kind of caught us off guard. So we're, we've been uh, for decades now the proof that if you design urban places for families, the families will come in numbers that will even shock you. We've been doing the opposite. We've been designing urban environments that seem designed to repel families. As soon as you start to think about having kids, you feel the need to leave. But that's not a foregone conclusion. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because we've been, we've been designing, saying they won't want to be there. And sure enough, we don't give them anything they want and they leave. So here's a risk. Is it possible that the pendulum might swing too far the other way? We're reinvesting in our cities, in the core of our cities in a significant way. What happens to the desirability of living in those suburbs? Those places where at the end of the day, you've got the long commute, you have, uh, you know, limited access in many places to transit. In the Toronto context, we're trying to fix that. Our goal is to add transit in the suburbs, to add density into the suburbs, to make them desirable places. But it strikes me that on a broader scale, there's a great risk for suburban places in what you're calling a competition that they're actually going to lose out. And I think we can look south of the border and see some examples of where that has, that's it's happened. Already started it's already happen. starting to happen. You know, we talked about it in planning school 20 years ago that someday people would abandon the suburbs and, you know, it's, there's starting, a, to it's starting to happen. And partially it's starting to happen because of math. Uh, because of the finances, it's not the it's not climate change. It's not the healthy communities movement. It's um, the beginning. One of the reasons uh, Detroit went bankrupt and Irving, California, had to declare bankruptcy is because you were building greenfield subdivisions at a rate that you can no longer afford. And some of those bills uh, hasn't even come in yet. And they're already a, a huge financial problem in many of these places. An American study was just done that showed that greenfields versus in, inner city development, uh, greenfield costs 38% more to construct, 10%, 11% more to operate at the same time as it generated only one-tenth the taxes per acre per hectare. 
Um, so that's a recipe for financial disaster. It's, it's costing a lot more and it's generating a lot less. We, um, we're, we're, they often say we're 20 years, Canada's 10 years, 20 years mm -hmm, behind mm -hmm. America. We're not really because we make different choices. And we often, maybe because we get to see what America has done and avoid the car crash, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. But, um, but we have had a risk. One of the benefits we've had in Canada is our Canadian cities have started to do the math on suburban growth options, urban growth options, uh, Halifax, Edmonton, Calgary, um, uh, Abbotsford, Regina, et cetera, have started to say the cost of moving the dial on where the growth goes, uh, half the growth being in the inner city versus the suburbs, 60%, 70%, 10, 15, $20 billion difference over the life of a plan. I like to point out that that math is probably the most uh, powerful argument we have right now because whether you believe in climate change, as ridiculous as that statement is, whether you uh, connect the dots between public health and the way we design our communities, money tends to get your attention. It sort of bridges the political divides, whether you're right wing or left wing. This isn't about that. This is about smart or dumb, bankruptcy or financial success. It's really gotten a lot of cities' attention once you start to do the true costing of things. So would you say that the trickiest thing about transforming suburbs is actually shifting the lens or the understanding of municipal finance, that that piece has to happen first? Or is it more of a design challenge? What's the big, you know, I, you know, it's... Yes, my answer is yes. Your answer is yes. Okay, <laughs> yeah. well, there we go. Because, that one's, you know, that we, one's we, done. none of us can afford to be linear any uh, at this point. We've got to be doing it all. We can't afford to wait for the um, for upper levels of government to smarten up on tax, taxing systems, etc., there's a lot of things that are wrong with the suburbs that have to do with municipal standards. So there's we get our own house in order in cities. Road we can improve a lot. And, road widths, yeah. everything. You know, we uh, how the street is designed. The federal government isn't determining that for us. So we can we can do a lot to make the suburbs better within the context of our own rules and regulations. Uh, you know, if you looked at our rules and regulations for cities, you would conclude that we want sprawl because that's what the regulations seem to require. In in many cases. So cities certainly have to take a fresh look and rethink um, just about everything. Uh, but then, yeah, at the same time, we have conversations with other levels of government about uh, the perverse subsidies, etc. But I, for one, I've never waited for another level of government to do the right thing. And then, thank God, I can do my job successfully now. None of us has that 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 um, uh, luxury of waiting for perfect conditions because we're never going to have perfect conditions. So I think it's fair to say um, that really there's, there's two big uh, drivers for change that have to be activated. One is the municipal finance piece, like when you do the math and, you know, I've seen the same numbers. I've seen some great graphics that are actually articulate what you're showing, the, the wealth generated in certain places in comparison to the expense. And the, it's stunning, the contradictions. No economist would ever argue for a suburb. It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, so there's there's that piece as a driver for change and doing things in a, in a different way. And then another piece is, in fact, getting the regulatory framework in shape. You know, the policies, the things we do at the municipal level. Uh, there's a great book by um, an American scholar called Zoned Out, which essentially was the first book that I read probably about a decade ago that didn't buy into this idea that we build suburbs because the market wants it. He argued that we build suburbs because that's what municipalities zone for. You zone for a suburbs and then a developer comes in and builds, quite frankly, exactly what you've asked for. And then municipalities kind of turn around and go, wait a minute, these are costing us so much money. How did we get this? Why does the market want this? And the argument that he makes in incredible detail looking at municipalities across North America is that no, 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 no. You got exactly what you regulated for. You created rules and you put those rules in place and you got this mess as a result. And now you need to create new rules if you're going to fix it. So we, you started off by saying I was in town because of my work in Burlington and called it a suburb. I did, and there are I parts, did. Well, but it's a great conversation starter because part of it is suburban in its pattern. Yes. Uh, but they, for reasons of municipal boundaries, et cetera, and green fields and the provincial rules around agri protecting agricultural land, which are fantastic, um, 
have reached a point where they've got a little bit of finishing off to do in the in the era of suburban greenfield growth, but they're pretty much done. And the mayor, um, who's uh, great, ha- has proclaimed, um, "We're done growing out. We're now growing up, up not out, up and in, not mm-hmm, out." Mm-hmm. That was a pretty powerful rallying cry. And he mm-hmm. hired a city manager who I know well and a chief planner who I know well, and they hired me to advise them on all sorts of different things. And what we're having is this remarkable conversation about if you're serious about this idea of up versus out. And But mo- many other cities aren't that absolute about it, but Calgary, for example, in the new plan said, instead of 100% of our growth being in the suburbs, now 50% of our growth, 50-50. Right, right. That's a huge That's decision a big shift. with big billions shift. of dollars of implications in, in public savings. When you decide that, you sometimes underestimate all the things you're going to have to do differently. To deliver it. To deliver it successfully. And so I've been working with Burlington for about a year and I'm having a ton of fun because it's absolutely fascinating uh, with a city that's really motivated to to be a model for other cities across the country, a mid-sized small city model um, about how to be become more urban in a successful way. And boy, just about everything you can think of, they have to now do differently from from details and standards to even things like how they calculate density. It was all suburban in the way everything worked. And so we're 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 doing it's it's one of the most fun projects I've worked on in Canada. Uh, cool. Because not because it's Toronto or Vancouver or anything, but because of the level of the aspiration. So Burlington's going to be a place to watch because they're doing the tough sledding, the hard sledding that says all the things we have to change if we're really serious about this slogan that we put out there that said up versus out successfully. Well, from where I sit, uh, there's a lot of variables and a lot of players that lead to successful transformation. Um, You have to have a development industry that is willing to step up at the table and take a risk and do things in new ways. You need to have politicians that are willing to step up to the table and take a risk and do things in new ways. You need municipal planners and planning staff who are willing to step outside their comfort zone and do things in a fundamentally different way. And then you need a public that is willing to gauge in a substantive way and also embrace a different vision of the future than what they currently see around them. We had this week uh, Michael Flynn from New York City in who has done a tremendous amount of work with Jeanette Sadat Khan. Uh, he works at Sam Schwartz and Associates uh, on pilot projects. And And the very first slide of his deck, uh, very simple slide, hit me very hard. He talked about how physical change is about culture change. And the reality is if we just think it's about physical change and we don't talk about the city we're becoming, what we want to achieve in terms of our objective, we won't be able to transform the physical shape of the city. That we have to think about our culture, how we're changing our culture. And this is really about how we live our lives, that opportunity to not have to have a long commute, that opportunity to live in an environment where you can do things just down the street instead of always feeling like everything is in another jurisdiction and demands a lot of planning and a lot of orchestration. And I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about transforming our suburbs, and I like it that we've also talked about the the counterpoint, which is we have to transform our urban areas too. There are different kinds of transformations, but they're needed just as urgently. Uh, when we're talking about transforming our suburbs, yes, it's about municipal finance. Yes, it's about regulatory tools. But maybe most importantly, it's about the kind of culture we're creating, the kind of society that we're creating, the kind of places that we want to live, the kind of places that we want to share uh, in common. If you want to change the culture, which I absolutely agree is the, the probably the, the starting point of any real place for transformation, uh, you've got to change the conversation. You laid out the the, 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 the components of the conversation, the public council, staff, development industry, you're not always going to have that perfect condition where they're all aligned in a perfect storm. Sometimes you've got to facilitate and create that. It comes back to what we've talked about before, about the need for us to be more persuasive, more effective urbanists and city planners. Because while we're ta- what we've just described is an incredibly complex and important challenge. And many in our profession still uh, think our job is to uh, enforce the zoning bylaw. 
So we all have to be, and I'm not dis- disrespecting folks who do that, but the- Well, hey, I've got a lot of people working for me who have a really important job enforcing the zoning bylaw. Well, the, the but you want to make sure you've is, got the right zoning bylaw. Sure, but That's the, the, the example challenge. I use in the suburbs is there are some planners who is the same profession I have, and I'm very proud to be a planner, but I can also be critical of my profession. They will tell you that the, the key to the public interest and their job is to protect- 50-foot lots from 40-foot lots in the suburbs. That's what they do every day, and that's that's their reason for, for working. As a profession and as a multidisciplinary group of urbanists from all sorts of perspectives, we all have to up our game. We've talked about that in the past and, and get out of some of the minutiae, some of our own silos and our own focuses on, on, on our job descriptions and be more better urbanists in general with a holi- more holistic perspective about the kinds of challenges you just laid out and be more persuasive in the conversation. As I've said before, be less boring, more convincing <laughs> and listen better so that we can be maybe leaders in facilitating that kind of conversation. And I I say that because you and I both, I think we both consider ourselves proud to be planners, but we've also been critical of our profession if we feel they haven't, we haven't done enough and upped our game. In context of the challenges our cities face right now, boy, we've got to be better than ever. Well, and, you know, that's actually a good point for us to end off, uh, you know, this idea of being better than ever. Um, We are a profession that needs to embrace continual change, continuous improvement. Uh, Some of the problems we're trying to undo are problems we created ourselves as a profession, and we need to own that. Uh, And we definitely need to take it on the chin when people don't trust us, because if they don't, we need to own that. But on the flip side, uh, I think we're living at a time with incredible opportunity precisely because we see so much change in our cities. And because we see so much change, we really are at a moment in history where we can do it differently. We can do it in a fundamentally different way. And if we get the right players at the table and if we're thoughtful about ensuring we're responding to some of the key drivers in our world today, like climate change. You know, we have to keep coming back to climate change because nothing really matters uh, uh, more than climate change. If we keep coming back to that as a lens for how we design and plan our cities, we will get fundamentally better outcomes. Brent, thank you so much for coming into studio. For those of you listening, what you don't know is that Brent and I have both worked a very long day and it's uh, almost 10 o'clock at night. We're both sort of cross-eyed and looking a little bit uh, bloodshot eyes. We haven't been drinking, but we maybe feel that way. But we really wanted to come together uh, despite uh, the complexity of both of our schedules and uh, share this conversation on uh, transforming uh, suburbs. So thank you so much for Brent for making time in your busy schedule to be here today. My pleasure, Jen. It was fun. It's pretty clear to me that our language, when it comes to urban and suburban, is tripping us up creating divides where they shouldn't be and holding us back as we seek to ensure all of our housing is located in habitats that are true places. As Jarrett Walker points out on his blog, Human Transit, the word city, whose Latin ancestor meant walkable urban for millennia until about the 1950, is still worth fighting for. There are some big moves we need to make to create, to adapt our suburbs to become walkable places. And many of those big moves that we need to make are in fact pretty tricky. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat and this is Invisible City. Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative, produced in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode features an original score produced by Lossless Creative. Could you do us a favor? If you like what you've heard, could you give us a rating or a review? It really will only take a moment and it would mean the world to us. This may come as a bit of a surprise, but Invisible City is co-produced by only Ryan and I. We are a tiny little team and we would love your support. You can find all of our episodes on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.